right. So, like I said, this is the last in a four-part series. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. Even though we started here from Matthew, we've kind of been jumping around. And um, so you can find your way to the book of Mark, chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. But as you turn there, I'll give you a quick recap, especially if you uh, have missed a couple Sundays or, or, what, or what have you. So these last four in this little mini-series about being called to follow Jesus, called by the Savior, being marked by Christ, being as a marked person of Christ. We've talked about four main things. Really, the first one was about Jesus' call, follow me, that he gave to Andrew, Peter, James, and John, those fishermen. They left their stuff. They followed him, and we talked about what it means to follow and who it is we're following, the me, right? The follow and the me. Second thing we talked about was acceptance. We might want to accept that mission, that call from Christ, but sometimes I think we all at times, some of us more than others, of course, struggle with, but will he accept me? So we talked about that. Then lastly, last week we talked about distractions and how as we are seeking to pursue Christ, as we are seeking to come after him and follow him, Satan or our own sinful flesh throws distractions in our ways all the time. There's all kinds of different ones. And we all struggle with different distractions from different things. And how do we keep from, from those distractions to following him? Today, I want to talk to you about fruitful fellowship or fruit-filled following. I'm just going to make up words. You try to follow along, right? So fruit-filled fellowship or fruit... What, what, it's on the screen. The idea of bearing much fruit for Christ, right? Because that's what I want for you. That's what I want for myself. That's what you want for you. That's what you want for me, right? That's what we want for each other, is to be Christians who are growing, who are following, who are bearing fruit for Christ, right? That's why we come on Sundays, right? That's why we pray for one another, right? So what is the most extreme thing you have ever done for Jesus? Don't shout it out. Just think. The most extreme thing that you personally have ever done for Christ. What might that be? Or what about what's the most extreme thing that Jesus has ever done for you? Now, your good Sunday school answer would be like, well, pastor, dying on the cross. And I would say yes, but also other than that, right? What's the most extreme thing Jesus has done for you? Because in this text, we're going to talk about an extreme situation. In fact, I'm going to argue maybe one of the most extreme situations in the New Testament, in the Gospels of the tales of Jesus' ministry here on earth. There's plenty of names that I could have came for this. I'm sure you've heard preachers preach on this before, so I'm not under the impression that I'm going to tell you anything new necessarily, but I do hope to refocus you and maybe have you look at this passage in maybe a slightly different manner. That's my goal this morning. So would you please join with me in prayer as we seek to do that? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, who is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. God, we thank you that this story, along with the rest of the Gospels, were written down by eyewitnesses so that we too may believe. You have told your disciple Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. 
So God, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this word today. God, we ask that you would help us to be, to be fruitful followers, not just hearers, but doers as well. Not just those who pay lip service, but rather who live their lives in accordance with your call. We ask this because you have asked it of us. And even more importantly than that, we ask this because we know that you are worthy. And so we ask that you would be with us and speak to us in your word by your Holy Spirit this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I warned you ahead of time. Make sure the volume's up, okay, but not too loud. So this is like a kind of probably like a PG level film, and it's going to, I hope, visually as well as verbally tell you the story that is in Matthew chapter 5, of which I would like to dive in right after this. So let's watch this together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying with a loud voice, he said, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what do you want with me? I beg you, don't punish me. What is your name? Legion. Lord, we beg you, do not send us into the abyss. Let us enter into the herd of swine. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened 
And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Go away from here. I'll follow you wherever you go. Let me come with you. Go back home and tell what God has done for you. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And how could they not? I mean, that's an extreme story. And I'm sure you've read it plenty of times. Maybe you've heard people preach on it plenty of times, and, and you might be familiar with it. This is the story of the demoniac, right? This is an extreme story. This man had an extreme event. Jesus did something extreme for him, and then, of course, went to the cross also. I want to run through this with you and tell you some background as we actually apply this for today. So in verse 1 there, it talks about how they came to this side. What you need to know in context is they had just fought a storm. Jesus was leaving the other side. They were fighting a storm. This is when he calmed the storm. And so Jesus gets to the shore and then calms the storm in this man. Both of which may have been, obviously one was obviously a demonic situation. The other one could have been as well, trying to sink the boat with Jesus and his apostles. But the other thing you need to understand is he's leaving the Jewish side and going to the more Gentile side. And so as we continue, verse 2, then Jesus steps out of the boat. Immediately, this man meets him. He, and it says here he has an unclean spirit. Now, there's many reasons for this, but he tries to make it very clear why. So I will too. He has unclean spirit. He has unclean life, and he lives in an unclean location. He is probably a Gentile. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. He is demon-possessed. Scripture is very clear about that. He's living among the tombs. He is naked, as you, you could see, or as the text implies, right? Because before he wasn't clothed, and now he is clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet. He was cutting himself, so he had injuries. In the Jewish tradition, in Jewish law, this would be almost the epitome of uncleanliness. He is filthy dirty, so he is literally unclean, right? He has blood on him, and then he's living among tombs. And if you even touch a tomb, you are traditionally unclean, right? Not like just wash your hands because you touched a tomb, but like in their Jewish law. And then he's a Gentile, and where is he living? It says that he's living in the hills where there are pigs, a defiled animal in Jewish tradition. Sorry, bacon lovers, right? It's okay. He's made all things new in Christ. You can enjoy your bacon today if you'd like. But the fact of the matter is he's making very clear that we understand how filthy and how dirty this man is. In fact, does it not sound like this would be the kind of man who Jesus would not accept? And yet here he is. And so in 3 and 4, it talks about how he lives here. No one could bind him, not even with a chain. He had broken it apart. He wrenched him into pieces. He broke shackles. Listen to how many times he names this in Scripture. There's a reason he goes over this and over this and over this, and why I go over it also. It says, no one had the strength to subdue him. This is a man who is out of control 
And yet, unfortunately, we see by the text, completely under control. Out of his own mind and under complete control of Satan. This is a man who desperately longs to be in control of not only himself, but who longs, as we will see at the end of this, to be in the control of Christ, his Savior. You know, the world tries to tell us that freedom is not being constrained by anything, but Jesus was here to bring the good news of to say that, no, 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 you are a slave, whether you feel like you're free or not. I am here to give you a new master, which is Christ Jesus. So this is a man who's out of control, and yet, unfortunately, completely under control. And so, as we move forward again in 5 and 6, night and day, he's in the tombs. He's in these mountains. He was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. This is somebody who's in a miserable and pitiable state. And this is where our culture is. We look for satisfaction among the tombs. And all that we find there is pain and sorrow and brokenness. Perhaps, perhaps you've heard uh, secular songs or just songs of the world, right? I'm, I'm, uh, nothing wrong with enjoying some of those, but some of them have messages that are maybe not so great. And, and some of them say things like, you know, I, I cut myself just to see myself bleed, just to know that I'm alive, those, those kind of things. Or perhaps you have a friend or a family member who is battling with depression, and so sometimes they make poor choices, and you wonder, like, what, why are you doing this choice? And for them, they might even say to you, I just do these things just to know that I'm alive. On the flip side, you need to understand that this man was demon-possessed, and the sole purpose of these satanic influences was to do the same thing that their master does, which is to kill, steal, and destroy. These demons were afflicting this man. And as we're about to find out, we cannot even begin to imagine the torment he must have been suffering every hour of his life. And so they're causing him to destroy himself slowly, which is exactly what sin does, doesn't it? This miserable, pitiable slave of an unclean wretch sees Jesus from afar runs and falls down before him. Why? Because there's an authority here. These demons have no choice but to recognize the authority that just stepped into their territory. Again, I want to point out, this is the kind of man who might wonder if Jesus would accept him. And so in verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. Now this is interesting. Who was it who's crying out? Is it the man or is it the demons? Maybe both. This man who was possessed by so many spiritual beings is driven to Jesus and recognizes another power. He has no idea. But the demons within him know him by his very name, Jesus. What does his name mean? Do you remember? Jesus, Jesus, you will call his name Jesus because he will come to save his people from their sins. And so this demon-possessed man runs to the only one who can save him. And he knows that he's the son of the Most High God. 
He sees his full humanity and his full deity, which, by the way, to impress your friends, is called the hypostatic union. 50 cent seminary word for you, hypostatic union. Google it if you want. All it means is he's 200% of 100% the same thing, okay? Figure that out. And so this demon-possessed man runs up to him and says, Son of God, whom I know is under the control of the real power, I ask you, I, pro- I ask you to promise me, that's this word adjure, I ask you to promise me by that God that you will not torment me. And in, in, in Matthew, where we also see this in Matthew chapter 8, if you want to do some comparisons there, there, excuse me, he says, before the appointed time. Don't torment me before the appointed time. He knows the end is coming. He doesn't know if this is it. So Jesus, in the text in between 7 and 13, which we're not going to cover, Jesus asks him his name. Now, the reason he does this is because this demon knows Jesus' name. Back in the day, there was this idea of knowing somebody's name and having a kind of power over them. So Jesus, who is the ultimate power, asks this demon his name, and he gives them a new name that they have now created for themselves because there's so many, and he gives the name Legion. Now, this is where a lot of pastors will spend a lot of time. I'm not going to. I'm just going to explain it to you in case you haven't heard it before. You probably have, so we're going to gloss over it very quickly. A legion is around five to 6,000 Roman soldiers. I don't know about you, but when I picture this in my mind, I picture this guy as like about to bust. And this is what I mean by he must have experienced torment that we cannot even begin to understand. You know, there's other sections in Scripture. It talks about Mary Magdalene who had seven demons who came out of her. And so this man who has a legion of demons, we don't know if it's five or 6,000, has been tormented day and night, crying out with a loud voice out of fear and out of pain and out of sorrow. And for the first time, he's going to cry out in a loud voice for the Son of God. And he says, don't send us out into the abyss, don't torment us, rather send us into the pigs. This is what they want. So, Jesus gives them permission in verse 13. He gives them permission, these unclean spirits, they rush out of him. He doesn't even have to cast them out. This is the power of our God, my friends. Let this be, if you get nothing else from this, let this be an encouragement from you. Jesus doesn't even have to cast them out. He is such the Lord over everything that he simply gives permission for them to leave. They beg to leave in his presence. Satan cannot stand before God. Even in Job, it says the sons of God came before him and knelt before him, and God asks him, you know, where, is, where, where, where have you been? Like he doesn't know. And then Satan asks God for permission to torment Job. Satan and all the demons of hell can do nothing without the power of God, the permission of God allowing them. Let me rephrase that. So these unclean spirits come out. They entered the pigs in the herd. They numbering about 2,000. So I don't know, three demons per pig, right? They rush down the steep bank. They drown into the sea. There is no question here now who is in control of the situation. There is no question the power that this man has. I, that's why I like this video. These, these herders, they see this man who got out of this boat, and they see all their pigs destroyed. And I'm sure that they were freaked out. The text says that they were scared. And that's why. In the text, I don't know if you caught it, they call him a magician. Because they have no frame of reference. These are Gentile. Who is this man with this kind of power? The other thing that we need to understand is Jesus cares more about people than pigs. I heard a preacher once say that sin turns all people into pigs. And here we have Christ who cares more about 
people than pigs and would rather see thousands of them cast away than lose a single one. Now, to these herdsmen, this is a big deal. Now, remember, this is their livelihood. This is 2,000 head of pigs. I know we have farmers here. I know you would understand that that kind of loss would be substantial. 2,000 pigs. And so, naturally, then these herdsmen run. These herdsmen run, and they run back to the town. They tell everybody. And then in verse 15, 16, and 17, I want to talk about 15 and 17. They come back, and Jesus saw the demon-possessed, or they, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. Now, listen how, listen how uh, Mark describes this man, and think of your own story. They came and saw this demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right hand, and they were afraid. And then 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This man is the one who would forever be known as the one who had had been possessed by a legion. He would have scars from those rocks, probably covering his face and his arms and his legs. If he had had a family, we don't know. The text doesn't say that. Where were they at this point? Had they moved on? Had they passed away? What was he missing out on? What about the people in the town who were under the charge of subduing beforehand? When you see him walk into town, newly shaven, freshly washed, and in his right mind, what would go through their mind? Think of this story that this man would be able to tell. Remember I asked you at the beginning, right? What is the most amazing thing or the most extreme thing that you have ever done for Jesus or that Jesus has ever done for you? This is an extreme story. And I want you to be warned by it also because as we see in the text, these people who are afraid of Jesus' power, and sometimes maybe that's us today. Maybe you know a friend or a family member or maybe even you are listening to this message right now and you're hearing about this Jesus who is the commander of all things, even over satanic powers, and that scares you because that means it's going to cost you something like it did these herd, these guys who had pigs. So be warned that if you ask Jesus to leave, he just might do it. So much for the introduction. This is where I wanted to go this morning. Mark 5, 18 through 20. So he was about to get into the boat. This man who was just set free from all these things was about to get into the boat. Now, listen, this is very much like what we talked about last week with the distractions, right? Three guys said they were going to follow. Jesus gives them reasons not to. And as far as we know from the text, they don't. This man, Jesus was about to get into the boat. The one who had been possessed by the demons begs him. So we have two types of begging. One beg for Jesus to go. The other begging that he might come with Jesus And Jesus, it says, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It says in verse 20, and he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Last factoid for you, the Decapolis, this word Decapolis just means 10 cities. So it's ten cities that were close enough related to each other that they gave it just one name, Decapolis. Ten. Ten cities. And so Jesus tells this man, go home. 
We've talked about four things. This man understood the call, follow me. He didn't even have to have it issued to him. He was willing to leave everything. For he knew without Christ, he had nothing anyway. What was he to go back to? The tombs? These legion of demons that were tormenting him every waking moment of his life? The friends and family who had already signed off of him because of his wicked nature? Or or those in the town that would scoff at him for being unclean maniac? What was he to go back to? It was no problem for him to follow Jesus. Jesus, you have no place to sleep? Check. Been sleeping in tombs, man. We're good, right? Acceptance. This man knew that Jesus would accept him. Do you know why? Because he could have passed on by. He could have seen this raging lunatic up in the tombs and just said, get out of here. And he would have had to leave. He was under subjugation of satanic powers. They would have carried him away. Had he wanted to stay, they would have possessed his body and removed him from the scene. I dare say that when he was in the Decapolis, there was never a time where this man was distracted from the duty that he was called to do. He said, go and tell your family. And it says that he went. And it says that everyone marveled. Do you know why? Because he came in, warts and all, and said, I have to tell you about this extreme story that is true, that I'm testifying of, that Jesus has done for me. This is a man who had fruitful fellowship because of his obedience. So here's some names that this might be if you ever preach this message. It could say something like this, from fanatic to follower, from maniac to missionary, from possessed to passionate, from demonic legion to devoted lover. But the same thing can be said for us. We were lost, and now we're found. We were blind, and now we see. See, the fact of the matter is the calling of Jesus is an exciting journey, absolutely. But that does not mean that every moment of following him results in a thrilling adventure. Some people think, and I thought, that the moment that I became Christian, I was going to ship off to some foreign country, be single the rest of my life, and probably die in a tribe somewhere. Praise God, he did not call me to that. So what is he calling you to? Is it some kind of an amazing adventure for most of us? If you're sitting here even listening to me today, maybe not. Most of the time, Jesus calls us to follow him in the ordinary situations of our lives. See, that's why he does to this man. Jesus knew he had to leave, so instead he uses him as a missionary. He says, here's what I want you to do. Are you ready for the most exciting journey of your life, my friend? Go home. Go home to the people that you love and tell them what the Lord has done. Tell them how he has shown mercy on you. Tell them how he commands Satan that he must flee. Tell tell them that he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God most high. Tell them about how he has freed you, how he has accepted you, how he has made right that which is broken, how he has healed you beyond any measure of healing that anyone has ever experienced that thousands of demons, that you would be free from them. Tell them. Sounds similar to me of Matthew 28, 19, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. See, the fact of the matter is, and this is what I hope that you get out of this this morning, is that we learn to follow Jesus in the ordinary things of life. 
by being faithful and obedient in whatever we do, by testifying to others about the work that God has done in our lives and by letting the fruit of our transformed lives be a blessing to others. You see, he said he is the vine and we are the branches, which means if you've ever visited any cherry tree or apple tree or vineyard or blueberry bush or anything that you've probably done as a Michigander, that if you cut that tree down, the fruit goes away. It is by daily dwelling in Christ that we can ever, ever, ever hope to be a fruitful follower. And so rest assured, he has done something extreme. Going to the cross for you is extreme. And possibly something also. Perhaps you have an amazing testimony being saved out of something horrific. Or perhaps you have the testimony of being saved at a young person being spared all the scars of this demoniac. But rest assured that what Jesus has done for you is extreme. But maybe he's calling you to the mundane. And so very quickly, how does this apply to you? I I am glad that you asked because here's the thing. God's word, wherever you're at this morning, God's word covers you. And I'm going to prove that super fast. Are you ready? What if you were a kid? Living under your parents' roof. How does this apply to you? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 6, 1 and Proverbs 23. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Why? Because otherwise they will kill you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, That it may go well with you uh, living long in the land, right? Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. You can do that every single day in the mundane, in brushing your teeth before bed and taking the garbage out, keeping your room clean, picking up toys. What about for the parents? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 6, Colossians, Proverbs. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I know that sounds close. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, and whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Raise your children to know Christ. Model Christ. Discipline them so that he does not have to later. Seek to do it in a way that is good and biblical and righteous, instilling love as well as respect for our Lord. What about single people? To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. This is Paul speaking. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Or, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Or, I want you to be free from anxieties. Oh, by the way, this is all in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you're single, go read 1 Corinthians 7. That's for you, okay? Uh, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, which is un- unable to happen, right? I'm- so... And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So how does a single person live in the mundane fruitfulness of the Lord? Do not be distracted by worldly things. Serve the Lord. Serve him and him alone. What about for wives or husbands? 
Nobody has anything to throw, right? I know this is always can be divisive, but if your husband is doing what he should, this should be pleasurable. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Or what about for husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are our heirs, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands and wives, how do you live in faithful, fruitful fellowship? You obey God's word. You seek to honor him even when he's an idiot. And husbands, you seek to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's your bar, not your neighbor. Grandparents, what about you? I'm glad you asked. Titus 2, 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children because it's hard to do. Please help them, right? Like we're retarded and then we finally get wise, right? And so anyway, so to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, so that the opponent, not the opportunity. So if you're an empty nester, your work isn't done, you have a bunch of other kids to look after, you understand that we are your family too, that you have a duty to us as well, that the young women are counting on you for wisdom and how to make it through the tough situations, and the young men are looking for guidance and that is why they are turning to the wrong things in society. If I've missed you at all this morning, I've got one more. If you have ever had a job or currently do, or if you have ever owned a business or ever employed anybody, I think we've got everybody now. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So in the everyday mundane of punching the clock, what do you do? You do it to the glory of God. Because he gave you the ability to show up. And if you own that business, how do you glorify God? You glorify God by honoring those workers that make it possible for you to do what you do. Faithful fellowship. Luke 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You, you, you know that. See, the fact of the matter is, is something extraordinary has already happened to you if you're in Christ. You've been saved. He's already said, follow me. If you, have, if you had said yes, if you have said yes, then you already know that you've accepted, no matter how filthy or dirty or wretched you might be. So watch out for those distractions and live faithfully and obediently 
from the everyday mundane because that is going to be 99% of your testimony and of your gifts of service to the God who saves. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the everyday mundane. We thank you for the constant waves of sanctification that wash over us as we daily go through your tide. God, we ask that you would make us more faithful in these areas of our lives. We ask that whether we are children or parents, whether we are husbands or wives, whether we are single or married, whether we are grandparents, whether we are widows, employers, or employees, God, we ask that you would help us to have everyday, mundane, faithful fellowship and faithful rootedness that we would abide in you. For you are the vine, and we are the branches. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a song of praise.